This is the Mason Vera Pain Show, your go-to lifestyle program, covering everything from technology and gaming to movies, TV shows, and pop culture to the supernatural and beyond. Brought to you from Chicago, USA, with your host, the unabridged millennial, Mason Vera Payne. There is so much uncertainty involving the approaching election, from concerns about mail-in voting, talks of voter fraud, and even the commitment of a peaceful transfer of power. Author of Living Dangerously, The Uncertainties of Presidential Disability and Succession, Dr. Jim Ronan, breaks down America's political institutions and the presidency line of succession. Thanks for joining me, Dr. Ronan. Sure, thank you for having me. So tell me about your book. How did this come along? Um, so really just kind of stumbled upon the issue of presidential disability and succession. I was kind of surprised when I started reading about the 25th Amendment, about the, the guidelines that were in place. But what really surprised me is in the research, the, the number of times as a nation, we really had close calls with this. And it began with George Washington. We could really go right up on through the modern day. And so I was I was surprised to see how frequently it had occurred and almost as surprised as how frequently it almost occurred. How long did it take you to do the research for this book? I'd say all told about three years. Now, that's not constant. I kind of looked at the uh, disability issue at first and then went on with some other things and came back and looked at the 25th Amendment. And so all told about three years, kind of call everything together and try to get it organized. Now, I read uh, some of your book, and it's pretty amazing that you have documentation of some of the things that you were able to find, like diaries and letters. How hard was it to find those? Fortunately, uh, there's been a great deal that's been scanned and placed online. In particular, uh, the, the Woodrow Wilson Library did an excellent, has done an excellent job with that. And uh, yeah, I, I was very fortunate in that regard because a, a lot of the material did prove, if, if not embarrassing to the president, certainly embarrassing to those around. And so that's the kind of information you would expect people who had written it that may have been culpable, they wouldn't just leave lying around for historians. But fortunately, a great deal of it is is available out there. So what is the Presidential Succession Act? So there's been a few of them. The first was in 1792. And the 1792 Act realized that, okay, we have a vice president, but there needs to be someone behind the vice president. And the 1792 Act created the congressional line of succession and placed the Senate pro tem and the speaker in the line and then the cabinet after them. But the reason the 1792 Act did that is not for real constitutional reasons, but because the Federalists who controlled Congress in 1792 openly despised Thomas Jefferson. And Thomas Jefferson was the Secretary of State, and he would have been just behind the vice president in the line. And they said, well, we can't have that. So they placed the Senate pro tem and speaker ahead of the cabinet. Of course, that didn't stop Jefferson from later becoming president, but that remained in line until 1886. And in 1886, Congress said, all right, we shouldn't be involved in this. And they removed themselves and pushed the cabinet up. And the last one was in 1947, which brought Congress back into it. But it flipped the positions and it put placed the speaker and Senate pro tem just in front of the cabinet. Why did they do that? I, I would think that it, it should be the other way, right? Somebody who's kind of outside, but I guess it didn't make sense. And that's the part I didn't understand. I thought it was good the way it was. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I'm right there with you. <laughs> Most of us who, who study this agree that the, the congressional line of succession is flawed. And Really, the the impetus behind the 1947 change, the Truman administration made the argument that they wanted some type of elected official in there. They argued that members of the cabinet weren't elected. But 
really, uh, as we look back, we, we think a, a great deal of it had to do with the close relationship that Harry Truman had with the Speaker. And so, as you said, there really doesn't make any sense to include Congress, and it really was fine the way it was, but unfortunately that change was made. And that is the line of succession that is in place right now in 2020. And so it's not, we don't just look back at 1947 and say, oh, that was a mistake. It's unfortunately a mistake that we, we, uh, we're living with right now. I was kind of confused about this part too. So let's say we get all the way down to Speaker of the House. Does that mean the Speaker is the new president and the pro temper is now the vice president? Then who's the new Speaker of the House? Or it doesn't work like that? Well, it, it does and it doesn't. And so this is, as I said, the congressional line is flawed. And this is one of the major reasons that the Constitution has an eligibility clause and says, well, you can only serve in one branch of time. And so if the Speaker were to ever become president, they would have to resign as Speaker. Now, we would say, okay, well, a Speaker would do that. But um, there's also a question of how long they would serve. And so the Speaker and Senate pro tem are in this, this sort of gray area where they're in the line of succession, but it would only fall to them if both the president and vice president were disabled. Were that to occur, the Speaker would become president. The Speaker would have to resign from Congress to become president. We would guess the House would then select a new Speaker. And so we could have a, a very odd situation where the Speaker has become president. We're not sure for how long, but now there's a new Speaker. They wouldn't be able to just revert to their old job. And the Senate pro tem would still be there as if needed. Was there ever a consensus of what disability meant when it comes to the uh, president? No. Uh, John Dickinson was a delegate to the Constitution Convention, and the Constitution does contain the word disability. He raised the question. He said, essentially, well, what is disability and who is to be the judge of it? And he was kind of met with the, the proverbial crickets chirping that no one could really give him a good answer. And we can make the argument we weren't able to provide an answer until the 25th Amendment, which wasn't ratified until 1967. But that was a question throughout history and really in creating the 25th Amendment was one that the, the drafters of it dealt with, which was, look, how can you – it's one thing if a president says, I'm disabled. That's fairly simple. What happens if a president – two big questions arose. What happens if a president is unwilling to say they're disabled or perhaps unable? if they had suffered a stroke, as we saw in Eisenhower's case. So, yeah, the, the question of who gets to determine disability really became problematic throughout history. Now, the 25th Amendment does create the mechanism by which the vice president and cabinet can now deem it. I can actually see why presidents would want to hide their disability, because they're also our commander-in-chief. By saying they're ill or they're sick or they're weak would actually tell other countries that, hey, we're primed to attack. And I could see in the past why they would do that. But currently in modern times, attacks like that don't happen, or do they? Well, absolutely. Going back in history, it, one, it was easier to, to keep things secret. We have Woodrow Wilson and Grover Cleveland and a few examples of really just an unbelievable series of tasks that were undertaking to conceal the president's true condition. But yeah, the, the other issue that occurred prior to the 25th Amendment is there was no mechanism. And so presidents were afraid that, hey, if I say I'm disabled, and even if it's only for a short time, I may be impeached or, or forced to resign. But yeah, in, in modern times, it really becomes a, a question of that. And I, I think the big thing we see with disability is that 
it's not even so much invoking it. We we kind of could even compare this to the, the talk of President Trump maybe transferring power earlier this month, that if a president admits they're disabled, the question immediately becomes, well, when are they recovered? And that's really something that I think a number of presidents have faced, that, okay, if I come out and say this, and if I admit to a disability, am I going to be able to definitively show, look, I'm better now, I've clearly recovered? And if not, does that kind of hang over me and, and raise questions moving forward? And another thing I thought that was really clever in this book that you had put in was that in 1790, and I'm not going to read the whole thing through, but there was a representative of Maryland. He voiced that, you know, hey, we need to keep pushing past the issue of what disability means. And the rest of the House was like, yeah, let's let's abandon the issue and just (laughs) forget about this. And we're going to talk about other things. And back then, I could understand why they would do that. I mean, they're coming from all their respective states by horse. So it would take them months to be able to convene and have a meeting. So they have a limited amount of time to get things done. I get that. But now, what's the holdup? I would think that we were can get things done faster, but we kind of don't. You raise a great point there with, well, what about the disability? And what we saw with drafting the 25th Amendment and any time this got attention was just that the scenarios would come into place. And it was, okay, well, this model would work. All right, but what if this happened? Well, what if that happened? And finally, we got the consensus in the 1960s, and a lot of it occurred after the Kennedy assassination, that, look, we cannot create a perfect model. So there's always going to be, a, well, what about this? What about that? And so let's try to you know, make it as broad and all-encompassing as possible. But, yeah, that was really something that we had seen you know, throughout history of just, well, okay, let's focus on this. Wow, this is problematic. Let's move on to other things because it's just they had a, a shorter window. I, I think the big thing we encounter in modern day, and as I said with the, the flaws in the succession line, is really attention. And uh, we had I mentioned that President Trump going to the hospital. Now, earlier this month, we saw huge spikes in Google searches for the 25th Amendment and, and press attention, and really almost as quickly as it came, it, it disappeared. And so that's really what we face in the modern day is just it doesn't get that much attention until something happens, and then it kind of dissipates very quickly. Now, what happens if you know something happens to the president early in his term like within his first year what happens then would there be another election or it just everybody moves up and we wait until next election year and so really what is interesting with the line of succession is that it doesn't come into play unless both the president and vice president were disabled and so what would occur in that case and this could occur the day after the inauguration for example in the 1981 when president reagan was shot it was just 69 days into his presidency if a president were to die or resign, the vice president takes over and serves the rest of the term. Were that to happen, the vice president, who becomes president, would then nominate someone to fill the vacancy in the vice presidency. If it were a temporary disability, like we would see with Section 3 or 4 of the 25th Amendment, the vice president would serve until the president was able to serve again, and then the vice president just returns to the vice presidency, and it's like nothing happened. And so the speaker and Senate pro tem are there but again, they, they only come into play if the president and vice president are simultaneously unable to serve. If the vice president can do it, they don't factor in. Now, are there any rules that, you know, the U.S. can nullify a presidential election if they felt that he was or she was disabled? 
In terms of nullification, it would be difficult. It would all revolve around Congress. And so the Constitution creates guidelines for counting the Electoral College votes, and that's something Congress has to do at the beginning of January. But short of that, it doesn't provide all that much information. And so in terms of flat-out nullifying an election, it would be unlikely. If something happened where a president-elect couldn't serve, it all becomes a question of when does it occur. Um, if it is prior to the electors counting, casting their votes in each state, and that occurs on December 14th of this year, it, it's then up to the parties. And what we would expect would happen is the vice president-elect would just move up. If it is after the Electoral College votes January 3rd and before the inauguration, the 20th Amendment governs that and says the vice president-elect becomes president. But there is a gray area, and that is between, that's what would occur between December 14th and January 6th, when the electors have voted, but Congress hasn't counted, counted them yet. And if that were to happen, I, I wish I had a better answer, but it would really touch off a, a constitutional uh, chaos. We would expect the vice president could just serve, but there could be a number of legal challenges because the electoral votes had already been cast. Now, how come they didn't use states as a model as to what to do? Because I imagine this wasn't just something that happened to the president. I'm sure it happened to governors, mayors, even other countries. Uh, why didn't they use examples of that to be able to, to make a rule? I think a lot of it had to do with, like you said, there were various guidelines in place. And when this first began in the 1790s, a lot of times there weren't guidelines in place. And a lot of times it would just be, well, we'll hold another election. And the 1792 Succession Act did include, it was some convoluted language, but it allowed for a special election if it was within the first two years of the term. And then it was, well, if it was before, I believe it was March, the election could be in November. And it was, it, it really, as I said, when presented the problems. But I, I think they did look at some state guidelines, but a lot of them differed. And I, it, similar to the, the presidential issue in a way, I think even at the state level, it, it gets attention, but it doesn't get all that much attention until it's a problem. And so what we see at the state level is most states, like I'm here in Pennsylvania, we have a governor and a lieutenant governor. Um, we elect them differently. They are elected separately, but the lieutenant governor acts as a vice president would there there should anything happen so i it they did take a bit of the state model but i think it was also a case where you know some states hadn't paid attention to it just like the um the nation hadn't really yet now when in grammar school and i'm thinking back in grammar school and high school how our founding fathers were considered leaders and natural-born leaders, and they were generals, and they were lawyers and philosophers and deep thinkers. And reading your book, it really humanized the whole process that they were really winging it. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, absolutely. And uh, I, I think there was just so much that it, you you attempted to create a problem, and it was almost kind of like pulling in a string that you attempted to fix a problem, and you created two or three more. And I think a lot of that occurred with this issue of each time they would try to address something, it created a problem elsewhere. And so you really saw a repeated history uh, from the 1790s right up through 1967. So we're talking uh, 
almost 170 years, give or take, of, like we said, Congress looking at this and saying, wow, this is a big problem. We need to address it. They start and very quickly go, wow, this is still a big problem. There are a lot of issues. How about we save this for another day? And it's fine. Let's look somewhere else. And unfortunately, that's what kept occurring. Now, at what point do they think that it's going to get fixed? Because I I don't imagine, I mean, I can't imagine why they would want broad laws. I mean, to to specify things and pigeonholed and to be so rigid, it would actually make more problems than trying to correct. So when they're trying to make it broader, would would that be like the only route to take? In terms of the succession line, It's a very easy fix because the succession line isn't mandated by the Constitution. And so the succession line could be repaired by a simple majority vote of Congress. They could say, hey, let's remove ourselves from the line. Now, I've certainly oversimplified that because, as I just said, that would mean Congress would have to say we're taking ourselves out of line of succession. They might be unwilling to do that. But, yeah, we kind of get into that question of broad versus specific. We see so much in the Constitution of you want it to be, and as you just said, with the framers attempting to to craft a document, they wanted it to be specific enough that we could look at it and say, okay, here's what we do. But you also, of course, had to leave it broad enough so that it didn't have a 10 or 20 year shelf life. And and actually, speaking of the the success, or the vice presidency, um, that's what occurred. The the Constitution we talked about John Dickinson then. The Constitution said in the case of disability or inability, death, or resignation, quote, the same shall devolve on the vice president. And no one really knew what that meant, and it really didn't matter until 1841 and William Henry Harrison died just 30 days into his term. And everyone kind of looked at each other and said, well, what does this mean? And it was John Tyler, the vice president, who said, well, it means I take over. And everyone kind of looked and said, I guess okay. No one, no one was really sure. Just because he said it was, it was much more, or um, kind of that balance of broad and specific. You know, and this is what I meant that it really looks like they were winging it because if they didn't know what it meant, why did they put it in there in the first place? Yeah, no, that's an excellent question, and I think it comes back in the end to how much do we want to get. How deep into the weeds do we want to get with this, I guess, would be that if we start down the line of attempting to label or or quantify what constitutes a disability, do does it become too problematic? Do we leave things out? And, you know, in talking about this with students, whenever we look at something like the Bill of Rights, they said there, there was an argument against the Bill of Rights, and it wasn't so much that the Federalists were saying, we don't want the people to have rights, but they raised the question of, well, if we start listing rights, what happens if there isn't one there? Does that mean, you know, do we look back 200 years and say, oh, they just left it out, it was a mistake, or they didn't mean to put it in there? And the same thing of, well, why would they leave this question in there? Why would they leave it so vague? And on the one hand, I think that maybe they left it for future generations to figure out, or as you said, with winging it, maybe they looked at it and said, well, this is going to be very complicated to resolve, so you know what, let's well, let's say, let somebody else do that. Let's move on to the next section. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's that's something that resonates with myself. I can see me myself doing that <laughs> that situation with like, hey, I wrote it. 
You didn't ask me to do anything else. I wrote this. Well, I think we're I think we're all guilty of yeah. You know, wow, that's that's a problem. And I'm really busy today. I'll I'll do that tomorrow. I I promise myself I'm going to take care of that tomorrow. And uh, very quickly tomorrow becomes a six months or a year. Well, Doctor Ronan, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate you being here. And for those listening, where can they find uh, find out more information about you and your book? So I currently teach at uh, Villanova University, and I'm up there on the faculty website. But the book is available through uh, Roman and Littlefield on their website and also on uh, Amazon. This has been the Mason Vera Payne Show. Thanks for listening. Can't wait to hear more? Head to WGNRadio.com for exclusive content by Mason. Also, follow Mason on Facebook and Twitter at Mason Vera Payne. That's all one word. And don't forget to share the show with your friends.